Hey, Miles, you want to play a game I made up? Jay, is this going to be more high evolutionary Mad Libs? Oh, nothing that complicated. I call this one Mark Trail or X-Men. Sounds unprecedented. How do we play? I've collected an assortment of quotes. I'll read each one off, and then you, and you listeners, can guess whether it comes from an X-Men comic book or classic conservationist newspaper comic strip, Mark Trail. That sounds too easy. Is there a catch? Nope. Just good old-fashioned fun. You know what? Sure. Why not? Hit me. Okay. First quote. He'll never suspect us clean-cut kids. That's got Silver Age X-Men written all over it, right? I'll tell you at the end, okay? Okay. What's next? There are approximately six million feral pigs wandering across the United States alone. Mark Trail, obviously. I shouldn't have picked you up at the airport. Hmm. I'm going with X-Men. The time I spent in the cave made me want to take some time off from work and invest in our relationship. Definitely X-Men. I'm guessing it's overbreeding, lack of food because of these late snows, or just some misrooted migration. Mark Trail, I assume. Mm-mm-mm. That powder is not Plaster of Paris. Does X-Factor count as X-Men? Yeah, I'm, I'm using that to mean X-Books in general here. X-Men, then. Okay, last one. The man is an unmitigated disaster, and he must be stopped. Well, that sounds like something you'd say. You know, you're not wrong, but that's not an option in this game. Okay, X-Men, then. How'd I do? You got, let's see, you got one right. Huh, that is worse than I anticipated. So which are from which? Oh, they're all from Mark Trail. You're joking. You're right, I, I am joking. There is one X-Men quote in there. Is it the one about the cocaine? No, it's the one about misrooted migration. What?! I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 247 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to uh, another miniseries. There were a whole lot of miniseries going on around this time. And this is an odd one, because this is a character whose solos we aren't generally going to be following, but we made an exception in this case, because this comic is, um, this it's quite a comic. So this is a miniseries that came out in 1993 and was about a character who was introduced as a supervillain and was sort of a rising star at the time. And who actually bears significant resemblance to an existing and nearly ubiquitous Marvel hero of the same era. That's right, we're covering a miniseries based on... Sabretooth! Come on, you didn't think we'd actually cover Deadpool, did you? Right? And then and, and the thing is, Sabretooth isn't that central an X character either. Deadpool's probably got, like... Vaguely equivalent qualifications, but at this point, it's pretty much just spite and stubbornness, so yeah. Yeah. Sabretooth gets coverage, Deadpool doesn't. Well, and there's also the fact that starting very, very shortly in our coverage of the usual books we cover, Sabretooth is going to become a major character, and this miniseries leads directly into that. So, you know, that too. But mostly spite. Mostly spite, the Jay edited story. Oh, come on. 
<laughs> so anyway, this was 1993. This was still the 30th anniversary of the X-Men franchise, hence the glut of miniseries. I don't know what 1994's excuse was. And in addition to the Deadpool miniseries and the Gambit miniseries we already covered, there was Sabretooth. Why? I mean, I kind of get it. I got to say, we have a character who has mysterious... A related backstory to Wolverine's, and this is 1993 when Wolverine was at the height of his popularity, we have an edgy, dark era where there were all these anti-heroes, and well, Sabretooth could certainly qualify as that, although I certainly consider him more of a villain at this point. Yeah, no, no, I would definitely not use the word anti-hero here. Yeah, and uh, we'll certainly get to that as we cover this miniseries. There are some uh, elements. Is that what we're calling them? Among other things. But before we dive in, we should probably remind you, gentle listener, of who Sabretooth, who is neither gentle nor a listener, is. Sabretooth made his debut way back in 1977 in Iron Fist number 14. He's Victor Creed, a vicious and sadistic murderous Catman with a snazzy orange and brown costume and mysterious connections to Wolverine. And those connections were indeed there basically from the start. Now, Sabretooth officially entered the X-World as a member of the Marauders during the Mutant Massacre. He and Wolverine, it became quickly clear, had some sort of shadowy, mysterious history. Now, we would learn about that history over the next many, many years, but I want to talk about the Marauder thing for a second because this raises a question for me. Is the Sabretooth we're seeing in 1994 even the original Sabretooth at all, or is this just like another clone of him? Well, the various creators have actually gone back and forth on that one, and I don't remember who said so, but at least one writer who'd written Sabretooth, maybe Claremont, maybe somebody else, had said that the Marauder Sabretooth was not the real one. That's why the Sabretooth we see in Wolverine number 10, who tries to kill Logan every year on Logan's birthday, is so much more terrifying and badass, whereas the one in the Mutant Massacre got his ass kicked by the Power Pack. I mean, I love the Power Pack, but, you know, Power Pack. I mean, the Power Pack kind of kicks everyone's ass in the Mutant Massacre. I guess that's true, yeah. They uh, they do straight-up kill one of the Four Horsemen. They're extremely effective. Okay, well, Power Pack, I'm sorry I said anything bad about you. You're wonderful, and you are indeed quite murderous. Anyway, let's go back to Sabretooth, Wolverine, and their torrid history. So... For starts, as we just mentioned, Sabretooth has been doing his part to make Wolverine's life a living hell. For instance, the thing on Wolverine's birthday where Sabretooth shows up to kill him. One year that that happened, he actually killed Logan's paramour, Silver Fox. Or it turned out he really didn't, but then maybe he did later. It's very confusing. Weapon X stuff. We should note that they are not the only couple in the Marvel Universe with this particular ritual. Miss Locke, Arcade's assistant, also tries to kill Arcade every year on his birthday, although with the two of them, it's a pre-negotiated birthday gift. Now I'm just imagining them swapping partners, and I feel like that would go very badly for Arcade. I mean, maybe? He's, he's, he's survived remarkably well, all things considered. I guess it depends on how good Victor Creed is at pinball. But anyway... Now, it turned out, eventually, that Sabretooth and Wolverine had actually worked together in the 60s in the creatively named Canadian Black Ops group Team X, which later fed them into the Weapon X project under Department H. And thanks to the Weapon X project, both Logan and Victor lost many of their memories involving this era, and quite a few other eras. 
Now, how far back their association goes, it's going to be retconned over and over and over, most notably in the phenomenally, ridiculously, spectacularly terrible film, X-Men Origins Wolverine, in which they have um, fought side by side in pretty much every war from the American Civil War on with flowing shampoo commercial hair blowing in the wind. And oh my God, that movie is, it, it's, someday I'm going to record a commentary track to that movie. I mean, give me a call. I want in. Anyway, Sabretooth, though. Sabretooth, right. These days, Sabretooth is working as a high-priced mercenary along with his partner, I guess, a woman named Birdie. I don't know that partner is the appropriate term, but we can address that once we're on to the comics, Parpar. And related to that point, Sabretooth is still a truly terrible human being. Now, this series, because it's 1993, is titled, its full title is Sabretooth Death Hunt. Does that mean he's hunting the concept of death, or that death is hunting him? I, I think it means that he's hunting something to death, but that's how hunting usually works. I mean, it could be like catch and release, like those poor fish you throw back and they have little holes in their face, but at least they're not dead. But that's not the default. That's why they call that catch-and-release fishing and the kind of fishing where you kill things just fishing. Okay, so you're saying that a uh, more direct title might be Sabretooth, Gone Hunting. Yes, or just Sabretooth, Hunt. That could also just be a command, like Sabretooth, Fetch, Sabretooth, Play Dead, Sabretooth, Hunt. Deadpool, Decapitate. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we're immediately getting uh, <laughs> off track here, however. <laughs> Are you, no, no. See, I am I am sticking in the general over of, of Sabretooth relevant media, at least. I suppose that's true. But nonetheless, let's dive into Sabretooth Gone Hunting Part 1, Home is the Hunter. Written by Larry Hama, penciled and inked by Mark Texera, and colored by Steve Bucolato. So, Texera's art is really the star in this series, or at least it's the apparent star. I'm going to argue this point in a few issues. And it's, it's really impressive. Um, he's a visceral, detailed, gorgeous artist. Um, his, his inks, his line art is, is absolutely beautiful. You mentioned the word visceral, and yeah, that was one that came to mind for me as well. He kind of reminded me as a more visceral version of Jay Lee, the artist that we saw in Executioner Song and a few other places. Like, they both have that sort of Bill Sienkiewicz-esque scrawl, but the way Texera does his version of the scrawl is very muscly and very violent and very just gruesome, I guess, even when he's just drawing normal people. And I think a lot of that is the way he does those inks, the way they're just these jagged, wonderful inks. He's got a bit of John J. Muth to him, too, I think. Yeah, I would totally agree. What, what else has Texera done? Um, he, did, he did the Maverick backup story in X-Men Volume 2, Number 10, which we covered. And apparently he also did Marvel's Buckaroo Banzai comics adaptation, which is a thing that exists, and I guess we'd better read that. Oh yeah, that definitely exists. Um, and as far as I can tell, his magnum opus was, or should have been, I hope it was, based on what I'm picturing, because I can't think of a comic better suited to his style, DC's 2016 Jonah Hex Yosemite Sam crossover. You know, I've heard really good things about the Hanna-Barbera DC comics overall, actually. I mean, all this makes me think of is that one issue of Animal Man. Oh, man. Yeah, the, the Gospel of Wiley e. Coyote, was it? It's something like that, and it's absolutely brutal. 
Oh, sure is. But speaking of brutal things, Sabretooth. So, we mentioned this was 1993, and therefore it should come as no surprise that the cover to Sabretooth Gone Hunting number one is cardstock and has the O's in the word Sabretooth cut out, like with little claw marks, so you can see the picture of Sabretooth being all scary on the next page underneath, and it's actually really cool. Wolverine number 50 did sort of the same thing uh, with the claw marks and you, you being able to see what was behind them, and it worked there, and it works here. Okay, but with Sabretooth, what's behind them are his teeth, so is the implication supposed to be that he gnawed through the cover? Yes. Yes, that's exactly it. So, as the issue opens, Sabretooth has recently unlocked some of his Buried by Weapon X memories. That was back in Wolverine number 64, for anyone keeping track. And Cyborg, P-S-I-B-O-R-G, which is a great name, drops Sabretooth. I hate him. Oh, he's great. Actually, I know nothing about no. him. No, I, I don't know anything about him either, but I already hate him just because he insists on being called that, and it's spelled that way. There's a DC character named Simon, P-S-I-M-O-N. Is that better or worse? Marginally better. Okay, so... But that's, but that's only because I was introduced to that character through the cartoon Young Justice, and therefore he has positive associations because it's a great show. Okay, well, fair enough. Anyway, the worse-than-Simon cyborg drops Sabretooth off at Sabretooth's sprawling mansion, and as soon as Sabretooth arrives, he is attacked by so many ninjas. They want vengeance for who cares. The point is, there are a ton of them, and due to the aforementioned law of conservation of ninjutsu, Sabretooth shreds the fuck out of them with a whop, rip, shrek. Now, I'm going to spoil something right now, which is that while they will come back... The ninjas have no actual reason for being in this series. There's nothing specific they want. They're totally unconnected to the plot. They just show up a couple times and try to kill Sabretooth. And that is all. Well, I mean, they do want revenge for, like, some dude that Sabretooth killed, I think their boss or something. But yeah, that plot line is utterly unrelated to the main plot line. And they're just so wonderfully irrelevant and they're pure cannon fodder and I love it. Well, later on, they want revenge for someone he killed at the house after they attacked him there, which, if that's the only reason, makes this the, the best sort of Ouroboros of ninjas. So, you know how there are companies where you'll periodically see job openings and you're like, no, I wouldn't even wish that on my worst enemy. I think the hand counts as one of those. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, that's that's not not an okay employer. Those are those are some bad HR practices. And honestly, while I'm not that familiar with employment law in Japan, I would be amazed if this stuff would hold up under scrutiny. Seriously. Well, all of the hand cannon fodder that Sabretooth doesn't whop rip Shrek apart are blown away by Birdie, a woman wearing these sort of band leader fringed epaulettes, these thigh-high boots, and wielding an X-Force-sized gun. She just mows the last few dozen of them down. There's this enormous pile of bullet casings at her feet, and it is so goddamn 90s. Uh, the thigh-high boots, incidentally, in case it wasn't clearly obvious from the rest of the, d the description, are like five-inch stilettos. Yeah, she's um, got excellent balance. Uh, what she also has is a prominent guest appearance in the Marvel vs. Capcom games. One of Sabretooth's super moves is to summon her and she shoots her giant gun at people. So, that's kind of cool. Yeah, um... Now, that's not all that Birdie does. She, by the way, made her first appearance in X-Men Volume 2, Number 6, very, very briefly. Another thing she does is to basically take care of Sabretooth's needs. So 
while Sabretooth is soaking in their truly gigantic hot tub that I can only imagine he borrowed from Cable and Domino, Birdie massages Sabretooth, and he just randomly t- picks her up and tosses her into the pool, which is kind of a dick move, and you get the impression is just sort of the tip of the iceberg in terms of his genuine straight-up abuse of her. Yeah, the way you said takes care of his needs implies that there is implies subtext that I think actually isn't really there in this series. Like, Sabretooth is very casually physically abusive, but that abuse and their relationship isn't really implicitly sexual or sexualized at any point, which I appreciated. Like, it's horrible in every possible other way, but it's nice that they at least didn't go there. I guess that's true, yeah. I mean, I kind of assumed that was part of it, but you're right. There's no textual evidence or implication, so I guess in that regard, they're a little less creepy than the Joker and Harley Quinn. Miles, literally every other comics couple in the universe is less creepy than the Joker and Harley Quinn. It really bugs me when people romanticize that relationship because it's just like straight up abusive on every level. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, the main thing that Sabretooth seems to keep Birdie around for is basically for her to use her psychic powers, because she is a telepath of some sort, to quiet the rage within him, to let him behave more rationally and deliberately. Sabretooth refers to this as the glow, and apparently what the glow sounds like is, how do you even pronounce this, Jay? P-H-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O? Um, it's either poo or fa. Yeah, I guess. And I'm going to go with the latter because that implies at least some kind of parallel to something that's fundamentally a warm and comforting thing. That's true. Although it is kind of fun to say, foo. Foo. Oh, that just makes it sound like a bottle rocket. Maybe it sounds like a bottle rocket. I don't know. Yeah, I'd be okay with that. Sabretooth conveniently tells the reader what the glow feels like. It's like dying and being born, like a white hot hurting and pure joy, like taking what you want and getting what you fear. And while Sabretooth is under, Birdie in Sabretooth's mind sees a small child in those turbine manacle things, but also like a Hannibal Lecter muzzle. And the kid talks about how he's going to get punished if they see him and Birdie together, that they'll lock him in the root cellar for good. And just as Birdie's guard goes down, the kid jumps forward, breaks free of his turbine manacles, and tries to kill her, and is kind of baffled that she doesn't fight back. Yeah, it it doesn't hate me? It doesn't want to hurt me? No, honey. I think maybe you've been hurt too much. And then Sabretooth wakes up and punches her across the room because Sabretooth is really bad at feelings, and also just kind of terrible in general. And that's a lot of what this miniseries is going to do. It's going to go into bits of Sabretooth's backstory that show the abuse that he's still very clearly dealing with. Which he may or may not have actually experienced, given that we don't really know how many of his memories are really his. Well, that night, Birdie decides that she has had enough. You go, girl. But not like you go, girl, from Ecstatics. That's different. And she turns the mansion security system off while Sabretooth sleeps, and a whole bunch of mercenary types, type dudes uh, jump on in, complete with their giant goddamn armaments. Like, do normal-sized guns just not exist in the Marvel Universe? Is the smallest gun the size of a suitcase? No, no, they do. Birdie actually has one briefly, I believe, in the third issue of this series. Oh, okay. They, they must be rare. But, of course, Sabretooth wakes up and kills a ton of these invaders with his claws and his teeth, and also his mansion's anti-personnel mines, Malayan tiger gates, and hall lasers. 
I mean, you're not paranoid if they're out to get you. It's still kind of excessive. It's the 90s. What kind of cleaning service do you think he has? Uh, they're probably hand ninjas based on how often I assume they die. Maybe that's what the hand ninjas want revenge for. Maybe that's what the hand ninjas do when they're not killing, or getting killed, I guess. I mean, you know, I, I get it. You gotta have a side hustle. Wow. So anyway, Sabretooth's spiked walls and lasers and claws and general wrath don't actually do him that much good. He is still subdued and carried off, and comes to, following some really horrible memories, chained down on an operating table. And there is this wonderful image by Mark Texera of this huge goddamn dude because Sabretooth is fucking massive, like covered in these ridiculously large muscles and with sutured incisions going all the way up and down his limbs and all the way over his torso. Like it is just grotesque and perfect. We find out that that a, a mysterious doctor who you don't really need to remember because he's not going to survive this series has both quote unquote upgraded Sabretooth, whatever that means, and implanted a bomb next to his aorta. Okay, one point for each of those things. When Dr. Mabuse, which is in fact his name, maybe you say it differently, I'm gonna say Mabuse, uh, describes Sabretooth's upgrades, he refers to him as Turbo Sabretooth, which makes me very happy. What? I'm, I'm just imagining him with, like, rocket powers. Oh, I'm just imagining the various Street Fighter spinoffs at the time. And to the comics credit, it does mention that that's what a video game would call him. Um, but as far as the bomb, to show Sabretooth that they mean business, they point to a nearby conveniently placed ninja who they found, who they've also implanted with a bomb, and blow the ninja up. Did, did Marvel not realize that ninjas are human? It's hard to say. I mean, I know the hand are sort of undead, depending on which version of continuity you go with, so maybe that makes it okay? Now, this is all done at the order of a guy named Tribune who's wearing what looks like a green and slightly less transparent version of Cameron Hodges' Ruby Quartz armor. I'm sorry, of robot Cameron Hodges' Ruby Quartz armor. That was not actual Cameron Hodge because comics are ridiculous like even more ridiculous than the ruby quartz armor implies yeah and it'll turn out that's not the only similarity this person has with hodge he kind of reminded me of like a clunkier version of, of master chief from halo i don't know it's just sort of generic green robot guy armor and tribune gives Sabretooth his new mission Sabretooth has 48 hours to either kill mystique or get blown up and that leads us into Sabretooth. Hunt, part two, a kiss before dying, with uh, the same creative team mostly, but this time the colors are by Marie Javins. Sabretooth generally subscribes to the X-Factor school of not paying attention to physical barriers, and also he doesn't really seem to care very much about uh, keeping his own house, well, I guess as intact as it still is, and because he just goes straight through a wall to attempt revenge on Birdie. And he is mixing his metaphors, but good. Now I know what kind of bird you are. A stool pigeon. Did he pay in Roman coins? Three pieces of silver? V Victor, did, did you just compare yourself to Jesus? Well, that somehow got even weirder. And Bertie grabs a convertible of his and drives off, refusing to have a conversation with him. She's also slashed all of his other tires, hopefully to prevent him from following her. 
No way, Mr. Creed. You only have meaningful conversations with people when you're killing them. She's not wrong, but the other thing that Sabretooth has is a motorcycle walled into the back of his garage, which he tears out of the wall and rides off on. It's like the Harley of Amontillado. And Wouldn't that be the cask of Harley Davidson? I mean, either way. But it leads into this amazing action scene. Like, Sabretooth bikes over other cars in order to catch up to Birdie's convertible. He chases her to the end of a dead-end bridge, but she turns around and runs him down, and then he claws through the floor of the convertible, and then they crash off the bridge and go into, like, a telepathic montage as they're falling, and it is so great, and Texera just makes it so exciting. Now, as they go off the bridge... Sabretooth demands that Birdie go into his head again, um, so that he can, you know, calm down and they can focus on the mission, which they then do. And they do this by going back to Sabretooth's house and looking for a clue for where they're supposed to head. And Tribune, I guess, has decided that dossiers are for chumps and the real way to direct the assassin you've hired or, or coerced is to spray paint the city where his target is on the side of his house. I feel like maybe this is the first time Tribune's done this. I love this series because so so this the reason that the cold open was what it was and the thing that I kept on coming away from this with is that this series is so bonkers that it reminds me of Mark Trail. And listeners, if you're not familiar with Mark Trail, you're like, oh, that's that, you know, newspaper strip about animals. Oh, you have no idea. Now. Odds are fairly good that if you're roughly miles and my age or maybe a little younger, you grew up in a town that like Sarasota, like ours, had a local paper that only published the Mark Trail Sunday strips, which, as you may recall, involve a nice man who looks like a park ranger telling you all about some or other kind of animal, but never bugs, snakes, or lizards, because that was during the Jack Elrod years, and Jack Elrod didn't like drawing those things. If that's what you think of when you think of Mark Trail, that's reasonable, but you've also missed out on the absolutely fucking wild ride that is Mark Trail weekday strips. Imagine, like, Archer Park Ranger. Only more so. And I guess less swearing. But, like, roughly an equal amount of cocaine. <laughs> subtextual. I'm No, no, not subtextual. Are you kidding? The number of drug smugglers and, like, Sheds full of cocaine that Mark Trail encounters over the course of his his very long life. He's he's been around since 1946. So um, the point is that's a lot of cocaine. It adds up. Um, yeah, like everyone he encounters is a drug smuggler, a poacher, some combination of those, possibly a human trafficker, and like half of them are named Marlin. It's amazing. Um, and the thing is. Mark Trail has gone through three major phases. The first was the Ed Dodd phase. Ed Dodd created Mark Trail. Ed Dodd was an extremely serious naturalist. He was an extremely good nature illustrator. He was a fairly good cart. He was, he was a very good cartoonist. Um, and his his Mark Trail strips are pretty serious. And then a guy named Jack Elrod took over. And Jack Elrod was a very earnest man who really liked to draw animals and did not understand how balloon placements work. 
And so, so a mark trail, um, a, a standby in mark trail strips is is some very very detailed illustration of a wild animal in the foreground and the action of the character's conversation happening in the background. And during the Jack Elrod years, which were substantial, he drew this strip from 1978 to 2014. What you'd often get was at least one balloon pointing to the animal in the foreground, which is why I have a comics panel of a squirrel yelling, "I'm ashamed of you." <laughs> <laughs> now. Jack Elrod also featured such amazing moments as Mark Trail punching a guy so hard he knocked off his mustache and beard, and the creation of Mark Trail's signature fight move, which was diving at people's knees while yelling surprise. <laughs> I love that. My point here is that Mark Trail, and, and the, the, the thing about it, the thing that reminds me specifically and intensely of this Sabretooth miniseries is a very, very specific tone to the dialogue, the ways that people shout and state things, the fact that all of those things seem very slightly off a lot of the time with what they're saying and doing, um, and sort of the sense that everything's being said in a really goofy, declarative voice, even and especially when it's really horrible. Now, we are currently in the third and what I think of as the rebirth of Mark Trail era, um, that is the James Allen era. James Allen was Jack Elrod's assistant for a fairly long time. He is delightful. And the really lovely thing about him on Mark Trail is he knows exactly what he's doing. He knows all of the Mark Trail tropes. He knows how to execute them. He is a perfectly earnest conservationist and an incredibly good nature illustrator. And he also writes extended stories about... Um, Trains full of clowns crashing in the secret forest where Mark Trail lives. It's not actually a secret forest, but it's called the Lost Forest, and it's sort of privately owned, but also sort of a national park. Wow. Anyway, I um I have I have a, a Twitter account that that I, I don't acknowledge most of the time called Drunk Mark Mark Trail, and everyone thinks that it's just me being an asshole, but actually ninety percent of it is just stuff that's happened in actual Mark Trail weekly strips, but with more swears. So we just burned through like a bunch of our saber tooth time and I'm not even mad. I'm so pleased. My point here, yeah, is that, that this is this is why the saber tooth miniseries reminds me of Mark Trail. It's got the same sense of, "Oh, and there are ninjas. Oh, hey, it's another bald man named Marlin, but different from the last bald man named Marlin. Oh, hey, it's a child named Rusty who looks like a tiny 60-year-old and maybe can't read." So what you're saying is that we really need a Sabretooth Mark Trail crossover. Oh, hey, someone just delivered a walrus in the back of a station wagon. <laughs> so uh, as Sabretooth and Birdie are talking about Paris, which they're apparently going to go to. Hey, look, it's a child with a fully grown pet bear as his best friend. A random ninja just sneaks up out of nowhere and Sabretooth just backhands him into pieces without even looking. Look, it's Mark Trail, who definitely just slept with a firefighter. Meanwhile, in Paris, Mystique is working on picking a body, an appearance for her date that night. She's come a long way, apparently, since her last appearance in Uncanny Number 303, where she was having all those identity issues. To think that I used to fret over not being myself and losing my identity. I'm a shapeshifter, and that's all there is to it. That blue weirdo isn't the real me. I'm whatever I want to be at the time. And right now, I want to be a bad girl. Or a bear. A bear named Rex, who lives in the forest and is best friends with Mark Trail and his beloved St. Bernard. 
Which parts of that are from the comic? You be the judge. So, I guess Mystique's sort of come a long way. I mean, clearly she's just shifted the way she deals with identity, so I don't know. That's a thing. Well, she's at least exploring her identity, and she's acknowledging and experimenting with the fact that everyone who she is is her. She's basically adopted kind of a tautological sense of self-definition, which, given her powers and her experiences, I think makes a lot of sense as an approach. No, that's that's a very valid point, especially when you can have looks like the one she has in this series, which is another leotard and thigh-high boots combo. Apparently, Mark Texera is really big on that, but also this black leotard with giant goddamn shoulder pads and enormous red hair. It's really cool. It's very Typhoid Mary. Uh, yeah, it really is, yeah, which uh, her look is also really cool. So, meanwhile, Sabretooth has been moseying on toward Paris, uh, you know, complete with various wildlife following him, I can only assume, and he X-factors right through Mystique's window and starts choking her, at which point she throws her drink in his face. Mm, Martel VSOP, just the thing to get the old blood going. To which Mystique replies... Also quite tasty on crepes Suzette. Especially served up nice and hot. You know, au flambe. And she lights him on fire. You know how, like, Rogue and Gambit have their sexy fight banter? Sabretooth and Mystique have their sexy murder banter. This is not sexy. This is just murder banter. Well, I don't know. Perhaps, perhaps. I looked it up, by the way, and uh, VSOP from Martel VSOP stands for Very Superior Old Pale. So basically the Republican Party platform. Rimshot. Anyway, uh, Mystique runs to the subway, uh, cycling through possible disguises. She doesn't feel wanton or matronly right now, but she does want to be sequestered, so she turns into a nun, because that's the kind of miniseries this is. And Sabretooth finds her, but she manages to throw him off his game by turning into his mom. Time for another flashback, in which Sabretooth's dad was about to kill Sabretooth with an axe, but Sabretooth's mom dove in the way of the blow and presumably died. Now, you talked about Sabretooth still sort of wrestling with and coming to terms with his background, but I think it's worth pointing out one of the trophies we saw in his his big stuffed animals, like taxidermy, not like teddy bears, um, Trophy room in, in his mansion in the first issue, which was an axe held by two severed arms. Yeah, it's a nice little touch. It's not commented on, but it's there if you catch it. Pretty cool. Valid. I mean, he's still terrible, but valid. We'll find out later that Sabretooth's mom is still alive, but whatever. Anyone who was in Weapon X, their backstory looks like Swiss cheese, so who cares? Anyway, this comic takes place in Paris, so they go to the only place you can actually go during a chase scene in Paris that's not the Arc de Triomphe, which is the Eiffel Tower. Mystique takes the elevator, but Sabretooth just climbs on the outside of the goddamn thing, which, to be fair, does look pretty climbable. He specifically does this because he's too manly for elevators, which is amazing. I mean, that that is an extension, like a take on toxic masculinity that I had never even considered. Oh, he's one of those guys that won't even eat hot dogs because he thinks it's gay, isn't he? Yeah, like, I feel like while Wolverine's bones are lined with adamantium, Sabretooth's are lined with a thick layer of toxic masculinity. And speaking of Wolverine, guess who Mystique's date is at the top of the Eiffel Tower? That's right, it's Logan in a tuxedo. So I thought at first that this was just Mystique looking like Logan in a tuxedo, but it turned out it was actually Logan, which was a twist I was not prepared for. That takes us to Sabretooth, Let's Hunt Some Things, Part 3. City of Light, City of Night, with the same creative team as issue number one. 
This is the issue that sold me on the series. Until now, I really wasn't sure quite how they were trying to play this. But at this point, I am 100% certain that Larry Hama knew exactly what he he's doing, and I worship at his altar. At the top of the Eiffel Tower, Wolverine and Sabretooth do the kind of really close-together yelling that means either murder makeouts or murder makeouts. And we get such classic Sabretooth lines as... Optimism's for candy but losers, boy. I don't think positive. I am positive. Affirmations with Sabretooth. Now, Sabretooth recognizes the form Mystique has taken on at, at the top of the Eiffel Tower as that of Lenny Zauber, a woman whom Sabretooth shacked up with briefly in Berlin in the ambiguous post-war past. And from there, everybody just goes inside for dessert, and Sabretooth has to wear a borrowed necktie because it's a Thai-only restaurant, and he just wears it over his costume! It is at that point the greatest moment in, of the series, but it is rapidly eclipsed by a series of other absolutely phenomenal moments. Now, we get the Lenny and Sabretooth backstory while they're waiting for dessert and, and champagne. Sabretooth was sent to kill someone in East Berlin, but arrived to find that a woman named Lenny, who is clearly retroactively mystique, in that um, had already beat him to the punch. Uh, she is sitting in the guy's apartment and drinking what she claims is poisoned champagne, to which she has spent the last year building an, an immunity. Every line in this is greater than the last. From Sabretooth... The suits of control must rate you a 10 on the butt kick scale if they reckon all you need is one extractor on a hairy job like this. Miles, let us apply this butt kick scale to everything else we encounter henceforth. Roger. So, Victor and Lenny end up at a safe house in West Berlin, and they have a lot of sex, and Sabretooth tells Lenny stories about his fucked up childhood, and I did really appreciate one of the random romantic banter lines we get. I got a loaf of brat, a jug of champagne, and you. So, a uh, nice Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam reference, Victor, but you forgot the part about the Book of Verses. That's what I call my... <laughs> That's a weird name for it. Right. Lenny gets bored and heads out to meet their contractor, but it's a trap, and she dies. But it turns out... Nah, she doesn't die. She actually uh, goes and finds the actual Lenny whom she's replaced, kills her, and dumps her into a canal. Aw, mystique. So... As this story is being told, as we're getting this big dose of backstory, a number of things happen in the very fancy restaurant that our heroes and villains and whatever are hanging out in. And I'm just going to list these very, very fast so that you can get roughly the same whiplash experience that I did reading this comic. Wolverine jumps to his feet, pops his claws because he feels that the story has been going on too long and he wants revenge. Birdie responds by whipping out a grenade and pulling the pin, but she holds down the quote-unquote spoon, which Bob Harris pops up in a footnote to tell us is um, the safety catch. Wolverine then picks his teeth with his claws and sits back down, after which Sabretooth smashes their bottle of champagne and uses it to threaten Mystique. This brings us to the greatest moment in any comic ever created up to this point, at which Wolverine rips off his apparently tearaway tuxedo to reveal his X-Men costume, and yells, If everybody else is gonna trash the dress code and get funky, then let's all jump in the pool! Then he steals the grenade from Birdie and uses one of his claws to replace the pin, which I am fairly certain is not how grenades work. I love this comic so much! Sabretooth points out that he's not worried about this grenade because he's already chock full of grenade, and so he has to kill Mystique, and there's nothing she can say to stop him. Except for the one thing she apparently does say, which is... What about our son? 
Mystique elaborates. They had a kid that Sabretooth didn't know about, but their kid super sucks, so she abandoned him. Yeah, she's incredibly derisive. I think she actually calls the kid boring. Oh, Mystique, you're the worst mom. See, what I assume from this is that she's actually just building on her prior parenting experience. And like, she's like, okay, so Kurt turned out great. What did I do with him? <laughs> Good point. So then Mystique just grabs the grenade and sets it off and there's a big explosion. And Sabretooth and Birdie just jump out a window on top of the Eiffel Tower. Logan and Mystique hang out for a little bit of denouement, during which uh, turns out that Mystique was just carrying around a large photo of the kid whom Logan recognizes but doesn't name. And then Logan is shitty to her about abandoning the kid, which, you know, there are characters who could pull that card. But Logan has, like, a small horde of children whom he has been leaving like a breadcrumb trail around the solar system. I guess their date's over at this point because he stalks off with an incredibly kindergarten one-liner. I know one thing. I know I don't like you. And then he goes and takes back all his Legos. So that's actually it for Sabretooth and Mystique sharing page time here, but they're actually going to get a miniseries at the end of 1996 together, so good for them. Meanwhile, though, on an airplane, Bertie combs through Sabretooth's memory to piece together just where Tribune was based. I really love this forensic telepathy part here. But she finds out from little details in Sabretooth's memories that apparently a place called the GC Group was behind all of this. GC, so that must be like a mutant thing, right? Since that's the, quote, politically correct term for them? Well, and since they spell it out G-E-E-C-E-E, -E -E, which is the way it gets spelled out in X-Factor when people are saying it in context of genetically challenged. But the thing, the twist here is that it's also Graydon Creed's initials, but on the other hand, if it's named for Graydon Creed... This raises the greatest mystery in the series. Why did he spell it out? Well, and also, I mean, we're getting the impression that if Graydon Creed's behind this, he probably he has it in for Mystique and Sabretooth, his parents. If that's the case, if he, hates, if he hates his parents, why did he keep the last name Creed? It's not that hard to change your last name. I'm going to go with spite. I'm going to go with basically the, well, I'm taking it, you can't have it approach. I mean, actually, that... I kind of respect that. Like, Graydon Creed's an asshole, but Sabretooth might be even worse. So, a uh, point for Graydon Creed. So, the thing is, Sabretooth does a lot of direct murder, but Graydon Creed manipulates the, um, you know, the, the machines of state to attempt, at least attempt, mass murder. Okay. And genocide. I take that point back. Neither Sabretooth nor Graydon Creed gets any points. Yeah, they're both really terrible. Fortunately, the miniseries, maybe fortunately, I don't know. I, I kind of love it now. Like, I feel like I've, I've just, I, my notes are usually really analytical. And, and here they're, here, um, they, they go as follows. Sabretooth and Birdie have stolen a bus and they drive it straight into the lobby of the GC group, which is full of ninjas. I don't even care anymore. I'm just letting the tide take me. I feel like that's a good strategy for reading this comic. But upstairs, Tribune rallies his suited troops while still wearing his own armor as follows. Gentlemen, banking hours are over. Prepare to defend yourselves. And all the, the business-suited bankers pull out massive, ridiculous guns! As Creed continues... Exemplary performance in the defense of our assets will result in bonuses and stock options. To your positions, gentlemen! Larry Hama is a god. So Tribune has a CHK-LIT gun. Which 
is a kind of remarkable, enormous weapon that he's convinced will stop Sabretooth. Now, there are two possibilities here. The first is based solely on on the, the acronym and sort of what it almost spells out, and that is that he is wielding a chiclet gun. So it just fires copies of Bridget Jones' diary at people. This actually makes a fair lot of sense as an ultimate weapon to wield against Sabretooth, because the thing about toxic masculinity is that it's also incredibly fragile and can effectively be shattered by anything that contains the color pink or the implication that women matter. But a caption informs us that CHKLIT stands for Charged Hyperkinetic Lepton Impulse Thruster. Now, I asked Twitter if there was a physics person around who could who could tell me whether this actually meant anything useful. Um, and uh, Tim Probable t- popped up to point out the, the very important point that a charged hyperkinetic impulse thruster literally just mean a th- means a thing that throws other things. Okay, and what about the lepton part? Well, leptons are subatomic particles, which I know from the D-minus poems of Jeremy Bloom by Gordon Corman, but more importantly, electrons are actually a type of lepton, so theoretically, this might just be a really oversized and unwieldy stun gun? 90s. So, probably. Leptons! Do we know what they are? Nah. Must be dangerous. Anyway, Sabretooth X-Factors his way in through a plate glass window and then throws Tribune out of a different window that's probably in the same room? Hard to say. He collars the doctor from the original, whose name I've completely forgotten, but it doesn't matter because Sabretooth then says, we're going to do an operation, but I don't trust you, so I'm going to cut open my own chest while hooting while you remove the bomb next to my heart, and then I'll throw it out the window, at which point it will explode with a womp. Womp is the sound this bomb makes. Ooh, a womp bomb. That would have really hurt if it blew up inside Sabretooth. It would have whomped him good. And meanwhile, Bertie mind blasts a banker while yelling mind blast, because this is how we live now. Well, I think she knew she was going to be in a fighting game later, so she was just practicing. Uh, Sabretooth makes the receptionist and or the doctor's assistant, I don't know, she's got big glasses and a name, so I assume she's more relevant, but she doesn't really do anything else. Anyway, he uh, makes her empty out her purse to find safety pins so that he can so that the doctor can use them to reclose his pericardium and thoracic cavity. I mean, as a qualified medical professional, I can say that this scans. So the thing about cutting into stuff to get to his heart is that A, I'm pretty sure you have to get around a lot of bones, and B, this is going to take like multiple layers of sutures, which means presumably that Sabretooth is going to be healing around a bunch of safety pins. It's fine. It's the 90s. They're part of him now. So at that point, Tribune refenestrates himself and shoots the doctor and tries to talk Sabretooth into snapping his neck. I'm not sure why. He's obviously well enough to climb up through a window and shoot someone. Uh, well, he's super messed up about this whole thing, and it turns out that all of his anti-mutant sentiments and his anti-dad and mom sentiments are because when he was a kid, as Bertie finds using her telepathy, little Graydon Creed saw his mom in her blue Mystique form, and Mystique then showed Graydon what his dad looked like. And this was, he says, one of the first of a thousand or so reasons he hates mutants, but that's where it all started when he realized that both of his parents were not only mutants, but mutants who had been keeping their nature from him for his whole life. Well, and mutants who were weird-looking. That was his big thing. You know, and I, this seems counterintuitive to me. I feel like most kids would be really excited to learn that their moms were blue and could shapeshift. Right? And I mean, I'm just saying, Graydon Creed, it's not like you can't shapeshift. Every time you're in a different comic, you look completely different. Now, 
Birdie says that Sabretooth can't kill Graydon because Graydon might actually be Sabretooth's son, and I don't know why she thinks that would stop him. Yeah, Sabretooth has thus far attempted to kill pretty much everybody around him for pretty much no reason at various points. I mean, I assume I would be entirely unsurprised to learn that this guy basically just did the Cronus thing and ate his babies. Yeah, maybe he's worried about the kindly ones. That, are the Furies a thing in the Marvel Universe? I know they at least at least tangentially exist in the DCU, but I'm not sure if they do in Marvel. I guess Hercules does. Hmm. Hmm. We should ask Hercules. How about we ask Max, who knows a lot about Hercules? That's fine, too. So, at that point, during this big climactic confrontation, Graydon stabs Birdie and kills her. So that means no more glow for Sabretooth, and that means that she has been straight up fridged. On the other hand, having seen his son stab someone for no apparent reason, Sabretooth is like, Oh yeah, I totally see the resemblance now. Man, you suck. And leaves, and that's the end of the miniseries. Yeah, so uh, all, all of that just happened. Um, this is, this is going to lead directly into X-Men Unlimited number three, to what extent it can lead directly into anything. But um, I, I gotta say, I don't know if I can reasonably describe this as good, but I, I, I think I liked it. I genuinely, like, I, I really don't know what my feelings are toward this miniseries. I, 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 this miniseries is too much for me to process while also identifying feelings. No, that's entirely legitimate. Like, it's, uh, I remember when I went to see the movie Life Force with Anna a couple of years ago in the Hollywood theater. We didn't know anything about it. And so every time the writer, uh, writers and director rolled a D20 and picked a new plot for a new scene, we just sort of had this, what is even happening look that we gave each other. And that just kept going. Yeah, no, this is like Listomania, Magic Christian, Weekday Mark Trail levels of left field that i yeah it's um i think i recommend it in, in if nothing else i know that there are a lot of people who for a lot of reasons don't want to try either amphetamines or hallucinogens and i have it on fairly good authority that this is pretty much what that's like at least under some circumstances oh i uh i'm not sure that i want to take those pills the thing with this series is, it's a lot of fun, it's utterly bananas, it is bonkers, but there's also, like, some really genuinely dark shit in there, and so I feel like I can't unreservedly recommend it, because there's some really disturbing stuff. Like, Victor is straight-up incredibly abusive to Birdie, as we mentioned, and, and there's a lot of uh, references to Victor's own abusive childhood, so it's, like, got serious stuff, but then it has also everything else. Yeah, it's it's got a lot of associated content warnings, and I feel like we've pretty much covered that material thoroughly enough in this show that you've got a pretty good idea by this point of whether this is something that you want to read or not. It's, um, I gotta say, what Larry Hama does with it is amazing. Knowing what I know about the Marvel, about Marvel style and that dialogue followed artwork. Like, if you enjoyed the comic Marvel Romance Redux, for instance where a bunch of modern writers re-scripted old romance comics, I think you'll dig this, because it's, it's, it's got a similar sense of the writer sort of trying to keep up with the art and eventually just throwing up his hands and being like, sure, ninjas, why not? Also, that Mark Texera art. Mm, so good, so good. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's, it's just also completely incoherent. It's, it, in some ways, 
this reminds me of kind of like the ideal form that that one Wolverine series that Bill Sienkiewicz drew could have taken. Oh, Inner Fury. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. Well, that's a whole bunch about Sabretooth. Let's talk some more about him, because you've got questions. And so do I. And so do we all right now, I think. But let's focus on yours for now. The Pariah Effect asks on Tumblr, What's your preferred version of Sabretooth's origin? Dog Logan? Origins 2? Wolverine's Weird Dad? Wolverine's Weird Son? I think I'm just going to take it old school and go for the parsimonious slash Occam's razory explanation, which is one of the first. Victor is Logan's dad, and Victor is the worst, and Victor is everything that Logan knows he could turn into if he ever gave in to the beast within. It's nice and straightforward and simple and fits both characters very well. I mean, don't get me wrong. I really do enjoy the incredibly convoluted backstory nonsense associated with basically every character who was ever part of Weapon X, but early Logan, like before all that stuff got worked in, had this raw simplicity to him that really worked. Like there was mystery, yeah, but the mystery was almost unimportant. And I think the way the early Sabretooth was portrayed, specifically and best in Wolverine number 10, was a significant part of that. I'm on record as believing pretty strongly that comics should never officially, canonically flesh out Logan's origins. And since Sabretooth is a component of that, I'm going to say that the same applies to him. Okay, so just leave it all in the shrouded mists of mystery. Yep. Fair enough. RevZJ asks on Tumblr, Can Sabretooth be redeemed? I've always seen him as one of the most purely evil characters in X-Men, but from pretty much this point in continuity onwards, creators try to put him on teams. Will he ever do enough to be redeemed? So we actually talked about something really similar to this pretty extensively in the live Q&A that we did last time I was in, um, in Portland, and I'll link to that in the visual companion to this episode. But also, my answer to this is kind of complicated. The first and most relevant factor is that Sabretooth is a fictional character written by people who get to make choices and basically ultimately get to answer this question in terms of the comics canon, while readers, meanwhile, can accept that answer or not, um, depending on how well it overlaps with their own. The question of redemption in a situation like this is a complicated one because there's a lot of question as to what redemption means. If we mean be portrayed sympathetically, yeah, absolutely. I think he can be portrayed sympathetically even without a significant redemption arc, as, as this miniseries pretty effectively demonstrates. And I think it's okay to do that. However, if what we mean is be an upstanding member of the X-Men in society... That's an entirely different question, and it's a question that centers Sabretooth in a conversation that I don't think he should be centered in, at least if we're talking about him like he's a real person. Because when someone has done that much damage, I feel like the conversation doesn't need, shouldn't be about, are they redeemable? You know, can they learn? It should be about how can we minimize harm and how can we create a space for the people whom their presence and whom the damage that they've done has, has effectively walled out of, of these spaces to come back into them safely. So overall, I wasn't a big fan of the crossover Axis, sorry, Sixus, where <laughs> at the end, Sabretooth was inverted, meaning in this case, all of his evil turned into good. Depending on whether or not you're a Radcliffe Hall, it might also mean that he's now gay. I mean, I would believe it. Uh, either way, really.
This is Miles from the future. So I'm about to talk about a recent X-Force run. I actually mean a recent Weapon X run. That's the 2017 run written by Greg Pak and Fred Van Lente. And now you know. Back to the past. While I didn't like that story, I did like what came out of it. I did like that we got to see a Sabretooth in the Uncanny X-Men run a little bit after, and I think even better in the X-Force run that just wrapped up very recently, who was really grappling with the exact question that RevZJ asked. Victor was asking himself, is there anything I can do, any amount of good that I can do that can even out the damage that I've caused. Can I be a hero? Is it even possible at this point? And I really appreciated that that X-Force run answered that with a, it's really complicated and you're not going to get a clean answer or a clean ending. And the series indeed ends in a sort of ambiguous, shitty way that I thought was pretty appropriate. I think these are good questions to answer and to grapple with. And I like the idea of Sabretooth himself being one of the people to grapple with them. So... If you want to keep that kind of ambiguity, then by all means, play with it. It's also the kind of question that you can answer on a lot of levels. As as Miles demonstrated, Like this can be an ethical question, it can be a narrative thought experiment, it can be a lot of different things. So I talked about it as an ethical question. As a narrative thought experiment, I think the best way and the most... Um, plausible way to have a sympathetic Sabretooth who can be part of a superhero group is to use Age of Apocalypse Sabretooth. Yeah, I mean, he did run around in Exiles for quite a while after that, and he was pretty cool there. I mean, he's effectively Wolverine. He, he's effectively 616 Wolverine in, a lot, in, in pretty much every relevant way. Yeah, uh, much taller, though. Okay, much taller, yeah. But I, I, think, I, I think that's a, a fundamentally redeemable characteristic. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, which means that this past episode that you just listened to is all your fault. And some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement from a range of fictional characters and concepts. Today, the mic is going to... Ooh. Today, the mic is going to Graydon Creed in his disguise as Tribune, I guess. Father, I will rid the world of filthy mutants like you and that shape-shifting witch who pretended to be my mother. Even... even if you just carved your way through my battle bankers as if they were nothing... Well, at least I can keep those stock options, I guess. But Homo sapiens aren't finished yet, and neither am I. Lar D'Souza, deploy your battle bakers. They've been up since 4 a.m. sharpening their bread knives and preparing their fondant plastique. Oh, and Father killed them all. So be it. Charlie from Ohio, unleash your battle rankers. They've already rated Father versus the Battle Bankers as the 3,425th best battle of all time, and Father versus the Battle Bakers as the 3,676th best battle of all time, and their own battle with Father is... Oh, they're... they're... they're dead now, too. Oh, damn you, Father! Damn you, Mother! You haven't seen the last of me or my fancy robot suit! I will have my revenge! I can't believe you didn't go with Chartered Accountants. I don't know. doesn't really have the same ring to it. But with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by battle producer Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, on Countless Ninjas, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode. 
Our show is 100% the fault of all of our listeners who give us the approval that makes us do things like this. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we're headed back to the ancestral home of the Cassidy family and all their leprechaun friends. Only without the leprechauns. What? Why aren't there leprechauns? I don't know. Maybe Sienna Blaze killed them on her way to fight Excalibur? I hate the 90s. So that's actually it for Sabretooth and Mistake. So that's actually... Mistake. (laughs) I made a mistake. All right.